Surprise, 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 surprise. Episode 67 of the Struggle Play Podcast. Bonus episode on a Friday. Damn, two in one week. Damn, son. Where'd you find this one? Yo, gotta start off slow. Gotta start with some soul. But if I'm going slow, then I'm going old. If I'm going old, then I gotta flip the record, man. Y'all know how I feel about Nip, man. Y'all already know how I feel about Nip. I ain't new to this. I'm true to this. Yo, this is a bonus episode. Episode 67 of the Struggle Play Podcast. You already know what time I'm on, man. Come on, Nip. Let's get it. Turn off the lights. Turn up my mic. Roll up some flights. Let's all get right. It's that shit you waited for your whole fucking life. It's that shit you waited for your whole fucking life. All right, y'all. Bonus episode. Looks like we still don't have a president. Or if you're listening to this right now, we might have a president. I don't know. But I figured I'd go ahead and give you all some fire-ass content. On a Friday. Why not? It's been a long week. Folks got anxiety out the ass. Trying to figure out. Waiting to see who will be the next president of the United States of America. We're still bracing for impact. What are we bracing for? Oh, gee, I know. The fact that another old white man will still run this country. Oh, I know. Probably for the simple fact that black men are still being killed on camera. Oh, I know. Probably for the simple fact that there are immigrants who are sitting in cages right now. Ages from infants to grown adults, babies to adults, separated families. Because that's not going to change overnight, is it? Or for the simple fact that people are still catching COVID-19 and are dying from it. Right? 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 But don't worry about it, man. Don't worry about it. America's going to be great again. America's still going to be ran by an old white man. Who cares? Don't even matter. Does not even matter at all. So for the for the ones who are worried, for the ones who are anxious, let's take our minds off of it for the next hour or such, right? Because for this bonus episode, I decided to bring on a special guest to break down a song that can hopefully give y'all hope into the weekend. You know what I'm saying? Because... Truth be told, this is a music podcast where I break down songs that exemplifies an artist's passion, pleasure, pain, wrapped up into one song. Okay, the artist has to literally be singing or rapping like they're working for their last meal. They literally have to sound like they've been eating off a struggle plate when they make these songs. You have to feel that hunger. You have to do that every single time. So before I introduce this next guest, before I start this off, remember, you can follow the Struggle Play podcast on your social media platforms, Instagram, 
at the Struggle Plate Podcast. Twitter, Struggle underscore Plate. And of course, you can follow me, your one and only host, Doug, on Instagram and Twitter at NorthSideDoug. For this episode, I decided to get a guest to help me break down a song that's near and dear to my heart. This man has so many titles that all I can say is that he knows his music and he knows his shit. Y'all heard the doorbell, man. Let me go get today's guest and continue the show. Okay, so ladies and gentlemen, this next guest that we have for the show, I can definitely say listening to his podcast has turned me more and more into my father in a good way. <laughs> because uh, I grew up listening to hip hop was never my first love. At first it started with pop music because I was in Catholic school. Then I was listening to Eminem and my dad, straight, hardcore, strict parent from Southside Jamaica, Queens, New York. He was like, there's no way you're listening to this NSYNC and there's no way you're going to get introduced to hip hop by listening to Eminem. You're not even listening to any of my jazz music. So we're just going to, it's over. He literally took over all of my music <laughs> and gave me, introduced me everything from Eric B and Rakim to KRS-One. Can't lie. Wasn't a big wow. West Coast fan. He said none of them write their own music, so I'm not even gonna <laughs> <laughs> I'm not even gonna listen. I'm not even gonna entertain it. And next thing Pops was a hater. Damn. Okay. Yeah, he's okay. he's strictly East Coast to to the core, you know. I respect that. I respect and that. eventually we started listening to a lot of jazz, a lot of Kirk Whalum, a lot of Sade. And I try to tell him, like, yo, there's this guy named Terrace Martin. He's like, it's not no Sade, you know. <laughs> it's not Sade. <laughs> so, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the show. This man, he has so many titles, I pretty much lost count. But I first discovered him as a co-host on the Heat Rocks podcast. Welcome, Oliver Wong. Hey, thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Yo, I, I definitely appreciate you for being here. With Oliver here, y'all, I can finally find somebody to nerd out with some hip-hop. Uh, it's been a while since I've done that on this show. And I figured why not um, talk about an uplifting song as now that we know who the president is. But before we get into the breakdown, before we get into all the mess, Oliver, if you could just please just name some of the 50 type different titles that you have going on right now. I don't know if it's that many. I mean, my day job is I'm a sociology a sociology professor at California State University, Long Beach, uh, but I've also been a music writer and a DJ since the mid-90s. You mentioned Heat Rocks. Thank you for so much for doing that. Um, some of you who followed blogs at one point, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago might be familiar with soul-sides.com, which was the audio blog I started back uh, in the mid-20-aughts. Um, I've written two books. One was a, a or I, I should say I edited and created an anthology of hip hop album reviews called Classic Material that came out, I think, in oh, 2003, 2004. And then um, 
I have an, an academic book, which I would like to think can be read by anybody, which is called Legions of Boom, and it's about the Filipino-American mobile disc jockey scene in the San Francisco Bay Area. Oh, man. You see that? So it wasn't 50, but I definitely lost count. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely lost count. So you're based out in... So are you right now presently in L.A. or in Long Beach? I'm in Los Angeles. I've, I've been uh, in specifically in my the town I live in is called South Pasadena, which is on the east side of L.A. And since 1980, I've lived in one Californian city, either in San Diego or L.A. or the Bay Area um, in that time. Though I've been back in L.A. now for, well, I got it, what, the last 14 years. Oh, man. Okay, because you said uh, Cal State Long Beach and... Yep. Um, before I moved to Denver, I was living in Vegas, and a lot of my good friends are from SoCal. So what I would yeah. do is I would drive from Vegas. Uh, best friend lived in Fontana, and I said, "Yo, I'm leaving my car here. I'm not going anywhere." Because I tried, you know. My friend said, oh, "Yo, from Fontana to Long Beach, it's 45 minutes." He was an absolute liar. <laughs> <You know? laughs> On a Sunday morning where there's no traffic, yes. If it's at other times of day, that is. That is a gross understatement. It's an underestimate. I just remember just driving um, on the 405, just cursing mm. about, saying, I am going to beat your ass as soon as I see you. <laughs> you said 45 minutes. <laughs> we're on the, we're, this is like hour, like an hour and 45 minutes into the drive. So, yeah, yeah man. The, I, I have grown a deep, fond and affection um, for West Coast music since when I lived in Vegas for about three years and I constantly went back and forth to LA because I'm originally from Chicago and I was always, always growing up super jealous of people from New York and from people from LA because we had Kanye West. I knew who Kanye West was from digging deep down into the internets in the blogs, but nobody knew about him really in the early 2000s in terms of a mainstream sense. So I was just like, man, L.A., they have Snoop, Cube, Pac, you know, New York has everybody else from Biggie to Jay-Z. It was like, when is Chicago going to get its turn, you, you know? Y'all had Common. You had Twisted. Yes, we had, we had Common. Let's not get twisted. But I was just talking more on the mainstream level because I went to school in Louisiana. Only a few people knew who Do or Die was. Only few people actually knew a common album instead of just saying he was a pretty decent, you know, rapper. And, you know, but we finally had our time. I was just saying this because um, one of my I was going back and forth with one of my friends. Um, he he basically shitted on Lupe Fiasco and I just <laughs> <laughs> lost my mind because I remember the first time I heard touched the sky it was on the radio and that was back when radios were playing the same record over and over and over again so yeah man but um before i wanted to really talk about mainly your podcast um heat rocks that you have right now because beforehand um on this show i specifically break down songs in the previous podcast i did albums and i felt like i couldn't really dig too deep into the albums that I want to without it being two to three hours. And that's why I just decided to stick to songs. And I think your podcast does a really good job on hitting all the key aspects for an album when you're breaking down an album. Like the first 
one the first episode that I ever heard is when you had Havoc from Mob Deep when you guys were breaking down only built for Cuban links. And I was like, they get it. They find <laughs> they get it. So if you could please explain more about your podcast. Yeah, I, the idea behind Heat Rocks is simple. So I do it with Morgan Rhodes, who is a really accomplished music supervisor. She is uh, she had worked uh, or maybe still is working on Dear White People on Netflix. Um, she worked a lot of uh, her earlier career was was with. Um, um, oh, God, why am I blanking on the name of the director? Uh-oh, you like, hear that, Morgan? Oh, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, it, I'm thinking of I'm trying to think of um, the director who did who did Selma. She did. Uh, Queen Sugar. Ava Duvernay. Thank you, thank you. I don't know why I was blanking on that. So she, yeah, she started with Ava, um, and is uh, I think this is public now, so I don't think this is any big secret. She's actually on work music supervising um, one of the two music supervisors on Space Jam Two. So she has certainly blown up in the last few years. In any case, the idea behind Heat Rocks is we invite uh, usually invite a guest on to talk about one of their favorite or most formative albums. And so when we had Havoc on. He wanted to talk about Raekwon's only built for Cuban links, and we're we're not not going to talk about a contemporary. I mean, that was that was really amazing. Um, you know, we've had and it, it varies. Like we we certainly a lot of our guests tend to be artists if we can get them, and so you know we've been lucky enough to have Rafael Sadiq on to talk about an Earth, Wind, and Fire album. We had Wendy and Lisa to talk about Prince and the Revolutions around in the world in a day, which was uh, aired uh, uh, at the beginning of the year, which was amazing. Ali Shahid Muhammad came on to talk about it takes a, a nation of millions to hold his back. Um, but we also have music scholars, music writers, um, filmmakers on to talk about uh, or, you know a variety of different albums uh, and soundtracks. Um, I was just listening, re-listening to, we had done at the beginning of the year as well, a, a whole series on movies with music in it. And so we had a bunch of folks on to talk about everything from The Bodyguard and the, the soundtrack to that film to Juice and the soundtrack for Juice. So uh, it's really just a kind of an excuse, to, you know, in the same way that I'm sure your show is to do a deep dive into the music that people love and the reasons why um, they love it. And so it's it's been incredibly fun. Uh, I learn something new every time we do it, uh, both in terms of prepping and of course, the knowledge and the anecdotes and stories that our guests come in with. And you know, once a week I get to have a super smart and fun conversation about music, which is about the best thing I could do on any basis. Yes, so what can you say is probably the I don't even want to say the biggest episode, but probably your most fun episode that you've done so far off recent memory. Yeah, no, I this it's funny because we actually just we just celebrated our third year anniversary uh, at the beginning of October. And so as a as a in honor of that, we did a our favorite our top three favorite moments on all of our shows across the first three years. And I think the consensus was we had on Phil Yu, who is probably better known to, to folks out there on the interwebs is. Um, Angry Asian Man, which is a long, long time running Asian American news and culture site. And he wanted to talk about Boys to Men's uh, 2 album from what's what, 91, 92. Um, and it was so much, I mean, number one, like, I mean, Morgan in particular loves any excuse to talk about 90s R&B. Um, but what made that so much fun is Phil, even though he had grown up with this Boys to Men album being like this formative listen for him in either middle school or early high school, he had never seen the music videos to some of the songs off this album. And like <laughs> Boys to Men were just so iconic style-wise. I mean, whenever people make fun of how R&B dudes dressed in the 90s, 
partly they're referencing, I mean, not just Boys to Men. I'm sure there's a lot of other uh, uh, folks as well, but their fashion choices were really iconic. And so we, we got into this discussion just about how Boys to Men were wearing these matching outfits. And Morgan in particular was just losing her ish because she just found that none of those things aged well and she, she just could not hold it together. When we're talking about like you know the the narrow sunglasses that dudes were were peering on top of and and matching striped pajamas and a lot of linen, a lot of white linen was huge back then and and for R and B groups and so that was just you know anytime we just spontaneously break up into laughter is always a good show and I I don't know if we've ever laughed as much as we did on that Boys to Men episode so shout out to Boys to Men shout out to Phil Yu. Shout out to people wearing sunglasses and peering, you know, on top of narrow sunglasses. Yes. And you see, that's the thing, y'all, that I really um, enjoy about Oliver's show is because at first I hear they break down only built for Cuban links. An album that I absolutely love. Um, You know, the purple tape is one of those ancient hip hop artifacts that everybody has to have. But as you see, he's talking about R&B. And if you listen to more in the show, he goes more into soul records, uh, blues. And I'm like, oh, man, this guy's a creep. This, he digs in the crates. <laughs> he actually knows his music. Well, I mean, the thing is, it's, we don't pick the albums. Our guests do. And so, which is the fun part of it, is when they give us something that's real left field relative to what I'm aware of, then in, in the week that I have to prep for the show, I'm giving myself a, a complete crash course lesson and whoever the artist might be. And I'm trying to think of a good example of that recently, but um, we had this British uh, singer and songwriter named, I was about to say Bruno Mars, but that's, it wasn't Bruno Mars, Bruno Major, Bruno Major, right? And he wanted to talk about Chet Baker's Embraceable You, which was not, and you know, I, I grew up listening to Chet, like Chet's greatest hits, but not this particular album. And so I went on kind of a, a, a small little deep dive into the life and times of Chet Baker and learn more prepping in a single week than in the previous, you know, 47 years of my life, you know, learning about Chet Baker. And so I think these excuses to kind of just dig into stuff and, and learn something new, uh, you know, I might be a professor, but I feel like to be a good teacher, you have to always also be a student. And that's one of the things I love about the show is it pushes me to continually learn about things that I didn't know about before. Um, you know, we recently had the, the writer and poet Hanif Durakib on the show. He wanted to talk about the Beach Boys' Surf's Up. Um, and I kind of stopped listening to any kind of Beach Boys albums after the mid-60s. This is an album from the early 70s. And had never heard a single song off of this album before. I didn't even know the album existed. And now I know a little bit more about the Beach Boys that I didn't know before. And um, I welcome any opportunity to learn more. Yeah. Oh, man. That's, that's, pretty, that's pretty damn awesome. So what would you say would be the first music genre that you started listening to growing up um the first one i mean i would say top 40 pop in this insofar as as a i was born in the early 70s so i was you know more or less a 70s and and 80s baby and kid and so listening to radio was my my introduction to just listening to any kind of pop music and at all my my parent neither of my parents both of whom are immigrants from Taiwan, um, they were, they did not listen to a lot of music. So I did not grow up with like my parents' record crates, like none of those stories. Um, so really coming into music was, was very much me coming into it, um, on my own. And so I started with, you know, eighties 
pop music. So you think about Michael Jackson, you think about all the big you know, top 40 hits of that era. I think the first kind of genre, to answer your question, that I really started to dig into, and this was actually through my older cousin, was modern rock uh, and new wave uh, of the 80s. So in, in, in particular, a lot of synth pop groups, so Depeche Mode, New Order, Erasure. Um, one thing about, and this is kind of an inside joke for anyone who grew up, especially Asian American on the West Coast in the 80s, but for whatever reason, New Wave was really, really big within the community of, of friends and peers that I grew up around. Um, but I discovered hip hop, my initial introduction to it, um, and I've told this story many times before, but my, my initial introduction came around, I think probably 86, 87, where a friend of mine from middle school gave me a cassette tape that had License to Ill on one side by the Beastie Boys and Raising Hell by Run DMC on the flip. And I had never heard really anything. I mean, I had not heard any hip hop prior to that and was just mesmerized by it. But because, and I wasn't that young. I think I was a, a freshman in high school, but I was ignorant of music enough at the time that it didn't occur to me that if I really liked this, that I could go out and find other stuff like this. I, I wasn't aware of genre. And so it didn't occur to me that if, the Beastie Boys and Run DMC were to my liking that I could go out and find Boogie Down Productions. I could go out and listen to Curtis Blow. None of that occurred to me. And it really wasn't until I was a little bit older. Uh, this was, the, I think, the summer of 1988 or 89. I guess it would have been 89. Um, I'd been listening to, I'd heard uh, Three's The Magic Number by De La Soul on the radio on modern rock radio, actually, because De La was considered alternative back then. So modern the modern rock station in, in LA, which is K-Rock, used to play De La songs on there. And I'm like, I, this sounds great to me. Um, I want, And then I, I, I must have read a review about Three Feet High and Rising. So I went out to a local record store and picked it up. And that was it. I mean, that album was the gateway. Three, that's a magic number. Three. It's the magic number. Somewhere in this hip-hop soul community Was born three makes dubbing me And that's a magic number What does it all mean? Difficult preaching is posthumous pleasure Pleasure in preaching starts in the heart Something that stimulates the music in a measure Measure in the music For people who've ever listened to To Stakes is High by the group You know, they opened with this skit About the first time I heard um, Criminal Minded by Boogie Down Productions When I first heard Criminal Minded I but then the end with, uh, you know, the first time I heard Three Feet High and Rising. And I identify so, so heavily with that because I can tell you exactly where I was. I can tell you the the effect that album had on me. And I know a lot of people like to say, oh, you know, this album changed my life and blah, blah, blah. That album changed my life. I would not be sitting here with you talking about any of this stuff if not for my introduction to uh, De La and to Three Feet High and Rising because that was my gateway into hip hop in terms of I now want to, everything I want to listen to, I want it to sound like this. And I want to know more about the music and the culture. And that opened up so many pathways as a writer, as a scholar, as a DJ, et cetera, that took me to where I am now. Oh man, yeah. So before we get into our breakdown, I do have some icebreaker questions for you. 
see if you have some unpopular opinions about some certain things in music, you know? Uh-oh. All right, let's go. Let's go in. All right. So the worst album that you've ever heard. See, the problem is, is that I'm very bad at coming up with impromptu answers. Like I need prep time. But let me let me think about this for a moment. Well, I could well I could tell you mine while you're coming up with yours. The worst album that I ever heard was Bone Crusher's uh, debut album um, with "I Ain't Never Scared." so excited to listen to it um i had to be about 10 11 12 and i remember saving up my money going to fye and i listened to it on my walkman walking to school in the middle of the cold and i just remember saying this is absolutely terrible (laughs) like i i got it but at that time i was so heavy into new york influence hip-hop and rap so I was right there with everybody uh, who had an East Coast bias against Atlanta rappers and was just like, this is absolutely, I, I don't even know what I'm hearing anymore. <laughs> well, this is not necessarily going to be all time worst in, in, in this book, but we had just recently taped back to back episodes about Jay-Z's album. So we did one episode about Reasonable Doubt and then we did another one about the Black album, which made me revisit the catalog in general. And it was a reminder that the Blueprint 2.0 Easily, I think, I mean, number one, I think it's it's the worst album in, in his catalog. Um, it's certainly my least favorite of Jay's uh, catalog, and I really love a lot of his albums. And in general, and this, this is definitely, I think, a bit of a hot take on popular opinion, I'm not sure there is any double album that has ever been put out by a hip-hop artist that I can legitimately write for outside of like a special anniversary issue where there's where the second disc is like b-sides and remixes and demo tracks i'm just talking about just like a straight up double album like i never loved wu-tang forever um wow probably sacrilegious i never really liked biggie's uh, life after death um not to say that i don't like individual songs off of there i just feel like it's very rare and i i really can't think of a double album in hip-hop that i've ever was like yeah this justifies the length and the Blueprint 2.0 stands out because compared to the Blueprint, just blue, the first Blueprint album, it's such a major disappointment compared to that. Like you dare to give it a, you know, a sequel name and it's, it's just not a great sequel, number one. It's too long. It's too bloated. And the fact that Jay re-released it as a single disc Blueprint 2.1 to me was a concession <laughs> that, okay, bit off a little bit more than we could chew. And you've oftentimes heard the phrase, you know, all killer, no filler. I feel like um, the Blueprint 2.0 was the inverse. It just had way too much filler and not enough killer to justify the length of it. So again, I'm not going to say it's the worst album I've ever heard. I will say that it's the worst Jay-Z album that's out there. Wow. So you're saying that Kingdom Come is better than Blueprint 2. Because that's my least favorite Hove album. Now, I don't think it's a great one either, especially as a comeback album. But yeah, yeah. I think if if I had to, if you had to force me to take an album with me to a desert island, I would take Kingdom Come over 2.0. Wow. Or American Gangster? American Gangster wasn't that bad. I mean, I don't, we, we talked about this on the show. I think the Black album was the last unqualifiably classic great album that Jay-Z put out. 
everything after that is kind of varying in quality and none of it exceeds the Black Album or Blueprint or Reasonable Doubt or whatever else. Um, but I think the, Amer- the American Gangster soundtrack was fine. Like it had some decent tracks on there. I, it, it didn't strike me as like a waste of space. Whereas like two point, Blueprint 2.0, to my point, you you didn't need half that album. And again, the fact that he put out 2.1 acknowledges they didn't need half the album. It was and you, and you know, I did listen to both of those episodes where you talked about Reasonable Doubt and um, Black Album. And Black Album is the very first hip-hop album that I've ever owned. My dad brought it home to me. He bought it for me. And the minute I heard him say Kanye West's name, I just lost my mind. I just remember losing my mind as a as a kid, you know, just trying to wave what, whatever Chicago flag um, I had, and you know, that's an album that was that's super near and dear to my heart because it was just one of those records that you just played that I just played so loud that my parents would just tell me just stop and you know and shut up and put your headphones on and I put my headphones on and I'm rapping it bar for bar, lyric for lyric, so. That's uh, that's interesting. I do agree with you about the blueprint, and um, I, I think we need uh, to let four forty four breathe a little bit more before we actually, you know, can say how great it is. Even though it did change the landscape, you know, of hip hop music, especially for older artists putting out um, albums and still being very good at that, you know, basically erasing this whole ageism <laughs> in hip hop. You know, so I do agree with that. All right. Second question. Hmm. I, man, you, you kind of killed me with the uh, blueprint too. <laughs> That's, it's a, for a long time, it used to be my favorite Hove album, but not anymore. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, it's fine. <laughs> I've, I've come to the light. Reason, reasonable doubt. Um, it's just perfection to me um, yeah. at this point. Um, the second question that I have for you that I just had and I lost it. Um, oh, the greatest album that you've ever heard. I mean, there's no, so my stock answer to this is that that answer changes depending on when you ask. All right. Um, and Right, because I think that to establish the greatest would assume that one's opinions about anything are somehow fixed uh, into amber. And for me, I think especially when you try to be intellectually and musically curious, you want to leave yourself open to to evolving in your tastes and 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 changing your opinion about certain things. What I would say, so so that's like my stock qualifier, and then my stock <laughs> answer. I mean. One of the albums that when people ask, you know, what are you know your top five, and that composition will change. So I don't this. I wouldn't have given the same answer in 2020 as I would in 2010 or 2000. Except I think one album that would have been on every list at least since I first discovered it, Al Green's uh, 1972 album, "I'm Still in Love with You." me is just in terms of every single song on there is perfection 
and obviously Al Green sing as a singer is sublime. You have just the very best version of that high records, high rhythm section sound. Can't explain myself. play on that album and so to me i don't know if it's the greatest album i would say it is a, a absolutely unqualifiably flawless album um and something that i will never tire of and and in terms of in 2030 and 2040 and the day i die if you were to ask me my top five that album is always going to make that list yeah just see now you taking me back um, to my first job in radio on campus uh, at Grandpa State University and shout out to college radio yeah 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 I love college come on man you know but the woman who was in charge of the station was not going to play any kind of hip hop <laughs> or R&B it was a smooth jazz and easy listening station to the core if you wanted Drake then we're going to get the jazz version <laughs> of whatever Drake and T-Pain records. And while I was alphabetizing albums, like most people do <laughs> at their uh, small radio stations, it was Al Green's I'm Still In Love With You. All right, last one. Yeah. All right. Off the top of your head right now, most recent, uh, give me uh, the if you can remember the first hip hop verse you've ever memorized. Oh, probably. Oh, okay. Well, it'd be a tie between, and this goes back to the story I was telling about how I got that, that, um, that dub of license to ill and raising hell. So it would either be Paul Revere by the beastie boys, or it's tricky by run DMC. Wow. Cause I gave, you know, I gave both that sides of that cassette tape a lot of run when I was, you know, I don't know, all of, 12 years old or so um probably if i had to like recite it right now i probably would remember more of paul revere's verses than it's tricky now here's a little story i got to tell about three bad brothers you know so well it started way back in history with that and me my team been had a little horsey named paul revere just me and my horsey and a quart of beer riding across the land but those were the first two songs in which I really distinctly remember just memorizing the lyrics to. Yeah. All right. So now, now that we've gotten that out the way, let's go to the West Coast. All right. Let's go to the breakdown, the song that I decided to choose. And I remember listening to the um on oliver's podcast uh, with morgan their 2010s um end of the year uh podcast where they were wrapping up a decade and they talked about kendrick lamar's and he talked about kendrick lamar's to pimp a butterfly grammy award winning album and the song that i decided i was going to break down for this episode is all right 
my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life, ah. Hard times like yeah. Bad trips like yeah. Nazareth, I'm fucked up, homie. You fucked up, but if God got us, then we gon' be alright. Right, nigga, we gon' be alright. Nigga, we gon' be alright. We gon' be alright. Do you hear me? Do you feel me? We gon' be alright. Now. All right, Grammy Award-winning song produced by Pharrell, Soundwave, To Pimp a Butterfly is an absolute masterpiece to me. Um, me and my good friend, Kel, <laughs> who's also a music writer, we get into this argument uh, every day um, whenever we get the chance because he will say that To Pimp a Butterfly does not have any replay value at all. Oliver, do you agree? No, no, I, I could not disagree more. Yeah, that's, that's a, that's, that statement is madness, but to each their own, to each their own. I'm not here to judge. No, no, speak your truth. Speak your truth, man, because this is an argument that me and him will probably have until the end of time. And I tell him he's the only one who will die off this cliff. <laughs> But when was the first time that you discovered Kendrick Lamar? So I was a bit of a latecomer, especially as someone who was living in L.A., uh, you know, all throughout Kendrick's uh, come-ups uh, period. And, it, you know, I had heard his name circulating, but it wasn't until Good Kid Mad City had dropped. And I was having lunch with a friend of mine who is a hip-hop artist himself, uh, Thess One from the group People Under the Stairs. And Thess, in general, is really, really picky about the hip-hop that he likes especially hip hop out of Los Angeles. And so I, you know, I was just kind of making small talk with him. So I asked him, hey, what do you think of, you know, I've been hearing all this stuff about good kid, Matt city and this kid, you know, Kendrick Lamar, what do you think of Kendrick? And I was full on expecting him to be like, eh, whatever, like this kid's whatever. And instead he was like, he's the most important rapper to come out of LA in a generation. And that automatically got my attention because the fact that Thess would, would shed that much praise on him. I'm like, okay, I should probably go out and take a listen to this album. And, and you know, really within just a few seconds and a few minutes, I should say, of, of listening to that. And then also Section 80, I was like, okay, I get it. Like, Kendrick is the real deal. Um, and so even though, you know, I'd like to be able to say I was, you know, listening to his first mixtapes. No, that's not the case at all. I, I wasn't listening to him until well, until after Good Kid and Bad City had come out. And at least one or two of the singles off there were already heavy into rotation on radio. But I didn't really, really pay attention until that that conversation with Thess. And his praise is what led me to to sit down with, with Kendrick. I remember the first time I heard the uh, Rigor Mortis, the remix with Busta Rhymes on there, and I said, this guy's pretty. This guy's pretty damn good. Mm. Got me breathing with dragons, I'll crack the egg in your basket, you bastard. I'm Marilyn Manson with madness. Now just imagine the magic I like to ask is don't ask for your favorite rapper. He did. Yes, sir. Amen. Chuch. He did. I killed him. Amen. Bitch. And this is rigor mortis, and it's gorgeous when you die. I leave recorded in a Morpheus, the Matrix in my mind. I'm out the orbit, you an orphan, and the hairdresser combined. I'm on the toilet when I rhyme. If you the shit, then I decline. I climb. And in college, the dorms, the dorms, uh, the dorm hall that I was staying in, we called it the Cali Hall because there was literally everybody from San Jose to Fontana, the Long Beach, the Orange County, all over L.A. County in general. And it was nonstop Kendrick. And the first I heard Rick and Mortis 
And I was like, this is fine. He sounds too good to be true. Um, because I'm a huge J. Cole stan. I, that's that's my guy. But, you know, obviously Kendrick, he's winning the war <laughs> at the end of the day. And I remember I saw a YouTube video of a show where it was Snoop Dogg corrupt in the game. And they basically quintessential passed the torch to Kendrick. And he was just in tears. And then after he did that, he performed the song High Power. And I just said, oh, man, this this dude, he's going to he's going to take over. And I just will never forget seeing that video. I'm going to say this and I'm going to mean this. Nigga, you got the torch, nigga. You better run with that. You better run with it, nigga, because it's yours. Do you remember the first song that you heard from Kendrick? Well, I think the first one, much like yourself, that really made a huge impression on me was Rigor Mortis. Um, and I think probably after listening to um, Good Kid, Mad City and thinking, okay, this is this is great. Let me, what else has he put out? So I went back one album to, to Section 80. Or actually, no, I take it back. I think it was, it might have been like you. I, I don't distinctly remember this, but it might have been because I came upon the video for Rigor Mortis. But either way, you know, listening to that, it was just such a a virtuoso a virtuoso performance, um, you know. As someone who was a fan of the free uh, freestyle fellowship out of L.A. in the early '90s, um, a lot of his flow and just the int- the intricacy of it, um, the complexity of his of the scheme, and just but what also not just from a purely technical level. The braggadocio qualities of it, right? The attitude that underlined it reminded me a lot of the Cats and the, and the Freestyle Fellowship. And of course, they're both out of LA, so there's that aspect of it uh, as well. And so it was a combination of both, as I was saying, on a technical level, what he's doing there is amazing. But it's also really clear, and this I think this applies to all of Kendrick's music, at least you know since that, you know, over the last 10 years, is that there's all of these ideas around style that's there as well. So it's not simply... I can rap better in a, from a strictly technical point of view, but stylistically, I'm doing a lot. I'm changing my voice. I'm changing my cadence. I'm, I'm being very unpredictable. And you know, one of the things I've said in the past is we have we're, we're, we are now well in an age where rapping well is not uh, much of a bar to clear. And back in the 80s and 90s, when I first started getting into hip hop, it actually took a lot of effort for people to rap well. Like that wasn't a skill that you could just take for granted simply because someone put out an album. There were a lot of albums that were released in the eighties and nineties where people are actually not rapping that well. So Kendrick is of the generation who this was the only music that they grew up on. And so they, they, they have mastered all of the, the performative elements of it um, and understanding cadence and flow and all those intricacies. But with Kendrick, the added element there is he's able to do all of this, all of this virtuoso performance with, what's the phrase? With Elon, right? With the sense of style. And so one of the things that you get from him is that he is very much a singular personality and performer in a way where listening to him, you would never think, oh, this is just like an offshoot of this other person. So, I mean, even though he reminded me of the Freestyle Fellowship, I didn't think of him as being an offshoot of the Fellowship. It's simply there were things in common. Um, he just—he seems so unique and singular uh, as a personality and as a performer. And I think Riga Mortis certainly stuck with me. And then coming to um, Good Kid, Mad City, 
The song on there that also added a whole other layer was him as a storyteller with the song Sing About Me. Um, and so, you know, it's, I mean, it's hard for me to pinpoint any one favorite Kendrick song because he does different things. If if we're talking about, again, just sheer going for gusto performance, rigor mortis is up there. Backseat freestyle is up there. If we're talking, though, about ability to craft an anthem, well, then the song that we're talking about today, All Right, has to be on that same level. Yeah. To, to me, um, I look at Kendrick as somebody who definitely embodies everything that L.A. hip hop, you know, has to offer in terms of the knowledge, you know, from Dre and um, Pac, you know, to the styles, the many different uh, styles that he has, you know, when he gets into his cadence and whatnot, he turns into K-Dot. And uh, as I said before, I am as as good as friends as J. Cole and Kendrick are. I feel like there's always a silent battle between J. Cole and Kendrick fans, but we know that Kendrick, um, in terms of quality of albums, uh, he's on this uh, three-album run, you know, from Good Kid to, to Pimple Butterfly. Um, we can count Untitled, but damn, you know, really just, you know, solidified, immortalized him, if you ask me, you know, at the end of the day. I remember... When All Right came out, it was around 2015. I had just finished school and the Black Lives Matter movement was really kicking off. And I just I just remember being so mad. I guess this was just me being a kid. I just remember me being so mad at uh, hip hop fans because at a time people were saying, oh, the substance isn't there this is like when trap and Migos and future was kicking off and i'm listening to kendrick's uh putting out these singles because all right wasn't even the date wasn't even the lead single off the album you know right. he gave us he gave us i and i was like this is what you're asking for you're asking for songs like this but it's not getting the spins it's not getting the love black of the berry and i was like he's giving everybody the things that we have been begging for <laughs> in the last 20 something years because there was a uh like a power vacuum or a gap left in it la hip-hop before kendrick came you had the game but then once game started quieting down it was just atlanta non-stop and kendrick comes and all right finally kicked off and i said finally finally he he will get if he doesn't get a Grammy this this go around, I'm going to lose my mind because I was one of the Twitter fanatics losing my mind when he didn't get the Grammy for Good Kid. You know, um, what is your first memories of All Right? I think the first thing that really struck me, and it, it still really does, um, it's one of my favorite parts of the song. It's just how it opens. All oh, my life I has to fight, nigga. And I think, you know, using from especially a sampling context is using human voices as part of the instrumental track is something that I wish more producers would do because it, I, I didn't grow up around 
and I get, I didn't grow up around you know choral singing in any capacity, you know, gospel or otherwise. But the power, right, of having you know the com- combination of human voices, there is something I think on a very basic human level, there's something very powerful about that, right, or about hearing us singing as a collective in unison. And so the way in which um, Pharrell hooks that up on the song instantly made an impression like that just got my attention right off the bat. Um, and so I think that was the, the, the initial impression. And I think all right, when I was listening to the album as a whole, and this kind of goes back to what you were talking about earlier about the replay value of it, there has not been an album over the last 10 years that I've listened to on repeat as much as to Pimp a Butterfly. Um, and it's it's not even that I think that the album is you know flawless in the way that I was saying earlier about like Al Green. That is a flawless album. I think if people want to nitpick at certain things about To Pimp a Butterfly, I think a lot of the critiques are legit. Um, some of my friends think there's too much saxophone on there. That doesn't personally bother me, but I can get why that might bother other people. Um, I didn't, you know, I wish I could kind of fast forward over the, the little conversations with ghost Tupac that are on there that did the poem and, 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 and whatnot. Like, I don't need that anymore, but all that said, sorry, I'm, I'm going on this monologue now, um, is w- w- I think initially listening to all right, it was always one of my favorite songs off the album, just in terms of songcraft. To your point earlier, when it started appearing at all of these Black Lives Matters protests, post Ferguson and whatever else, it's like I don't think I I don't think, and I don't I can't speak for whether or not it was Kendrick's attempt to craft you know a social movement anthem. I don't imagine that it was, but the fact that it got adopted that way, it made sense. I think initially it's like wow they're using all right as this anthem at these protests. But the more I thought about it, the more I'm like. Yeah, you know we gonna be all right. Like there, that is it's a it's a simple sentiment, but there is a lot of power in that. In a time, and of course, only you know over the last five years, it, the, the resonance of it becomes even more powerful um, because it's a way of saying it's not just a reassurance of we're going to be okay, which it is, but it's also kind of an it's a it's a chant of defiance. Like no matter what you throw at us, like we gonna be all right. We're gonna be here. Deal with us, and so. I think, you know, All Right has, is a song in the same way that it evolved in a way in which it became adopted and turned it as something else than it was intended. The way that I've listened to it has also changed as its meaning has changed uh, based on how it's been taken and taken up um, as this as an anthem for, you know, a new civil rights social justice movement. No, it, it definitely has. Um, I remember reading in NPR article where they basically were talking about when it first started seeming more like an anthem. And it was during a black lives matter rally at some university in Ohio. And they just kept playing it. And this one of the students was saying like, yes, we will be all right. Even though it doesn't feel like that right now. And you know, that's pretty much how the country's feeling right now at this moment with the mixture of a pandemic you know, in more Black Lives Matters um, songs yeah. and like no matter what it is that we're going through, all this angst and anger that we're feeling because 
Like literally the very first line in the first verse when he says, when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. And he's you can say that Kendrick is talking about, you know, his perception on the music industry and life and how people just look at him more as a economic tool rather than a person. But you felt him when he said that. Right. Uh, and when I wake up, I recognize you looking at me for the pay cut. Bahamas, I be looking at you from the face down. One Mac 11, even boom with the face down. Skimming, and let me tell you about my life. Painkillers only put me in a twilight. What pretty pussy and Benjamin is the highlight. Now tell my mama I love her, but this what I like. Lord knows, 20 of them in my Chevy. And it's one of those things, those attention grabbers, those lines, you know, like, um, that I feel like not a lot of rappers are really good at doing and i feel like kendrick does that so well when he just grabs your attention in the first line which is why jada exactly. kiss which is why jada kiss is in my top five of all time because you know jada he's going to give you something memorable in the first two but at least the first two bars of whatever verse that he's going to give you. Uh, used to be my dog, you was in my left titty. Scream, ride or die, I thought you would die with me. Found out you a bitch, you can't even ride with me. Now it's a war, you ain't on the side with me. Used to be my dog, you was in my left titty. Scream, ride or die, I thought you would die with me. Found out you And Kendrick immediately hooks you. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. something, yeah. it's a skill that I believe that uh, not a lot of people have, but he ends up having it. And if we're just talking about the song overall, it's really just about like two verses. You got your, you got your pre-chorus and your hook, and then you have your outro, and then this long, uh, this short abbreviated poem that you're talking about, you know, at, <laughs> at the end of the song. Right, right. But it moves so seamlessly because the traditional um, song structure at that time would be verse hook verse hook verse hook you know but not but no he he's the bridge is actually taking us to the hook you know when he says when you know we've been hurt been down before when our pride was low when you know we've been hurt been down before nigga when our pride was low looking at the world like where do we go nigga and we hate poor poor when they kill us dead in the street for sure Nigga, I'm at the preacher's door. My knees getting weak and my gun might blow, but we gon' be alright. Alright, nigga, we gon' be alright. You know, so he's talking about the consequences of being black in America. What was your favorite part off of this song? All of it. If you could just I mean all of it. Uh with the except with the exception of the poem at the end, as I've stated. But uh, you know, I think much like you, just when you when he first starts rapping, right? When I wake up, I recognize you're looking at me for the pay cut. I think it wasn't even the sentiment. I mean, I think I was I, I had to pause to figure out. Okay, so what is he saying here? But it's the performance of it, the kind of the cadence, the clip, the clipped flow that he's got going on there. It just makes this immediate impression, and I think as a song, partly because. It has this intro, right? All's my life, I has to fight. And then, actually, you know, it, it, to speak to your point that you just mentioned a moment ago, you get the chorus before you actually get the verse, and which is unusual. I mean, there are a lot of songs that do open with a chorus, but it's the contemporary pop songcraft that's usually not how you do it. So you get you get this intro, 
you get the chorus, and then it's like, okay, so what is Kendrick going to actually say once the the the, the you know the the actual first verse begins? And so there's all this anticipation that goes into how the song opens, and it's just setting up like, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? And then, bam, he delivers this opening line. And I'm not saying it's necessarily like the best you know, lyric on here in terms of the combination of the performance and the meaning and all these other things. I mean, this whole song is just a tour de force. But that opening, because we, we've been waiting, even if it's only just uh, you know, literally a few seconds, just the way the song is set up is you're just anticipating, anticipating, anticipating. And then, bam. This is where he comes and he delivers it. And I think that moment is just incredibly powerful. Um, you know, is it like the best opening line in a, in a rap song? You know, I don't, I don't know if it's going to overtake Public Enemy. I got a letter from the, other, the government the other day. I opened Reddit and said they were I got suckers. I like, from the government hard. the other day. I opened and read it. It said they were suckers. They wanted me for their army or whatever. Picture me giving a damn. I said never. But I think, again, with All Right, in terms of the favorite, the favorite part of it, that has to be really up there for all the reasons that I just laid out. Um, even though I think, the, like I said, the whole song is incredible. But that part yeah, is like the most and, incredible. Yeah, and you know, perhaps. doing the research behind on this song, I was really fascinated to find out that he was inspired to write all right, after he visited Robben Island in South Africa, specifically the cell where Nelson Mandela, you know, was imprisoned in. And you can tell that this was one of those things that he had a feeling. I don't, maybe, I, I could be assuming and just saying that this was like, this album and this song in particular was him letting just not just the board you know on the grammys or america knows like this is my moment and you can't deny it um anymore from you can't take this because a lot of people really felt like he was robbed <laughs> when macklemore won best rap album over good kid mad city how was your feelings about that when you first uh when that happened i mean i mean to be really blunt and I've thought this way since Jump. I mean, the Grammys ain't shit. I mean, when 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 have the Grammys ever really gotten anything, especially related to hip hop, but not exclusive of that? When has it ever gotten stuff right? And you think about, you know, the Grammys in the same way that the Oscars. These are industry awards, and who is that industry defined and dominated by? And why would we ever think that that voting body would demonstrate good taste? Um, I mean the. I mean, you got to remember my my entry into writing about music came during the 1990s, and if you look at what albums in the Grammys, I forget what year they introduced like a best rap song or best rap album into the mix. It was probably around some point in the 90s, and it is not a it is not a proud list of most of the award winners um, for at least the first decade. I think the first moment that I'm like, oh shit, the Grammys actually got it right, sort of in the way that maybe a broken clock is right twice a day, is when Lauren Hill won um, for the miseducation of Lauren Hill. And I remember, you know, her her acceptance speech. The first thing she got up there says like, I I can't believe this. Like this is hip hop, uh, which was a way of saying like, like I can't believe you. I mean, the way I interpret it is I can't believe you all got it right for once because you've spent years, literal years, of getting it completely wrong. But 
that to me was a blip. I mean, maybe Outcast won at some later point, but in general, I just I've never trusted the Grammys to be an indicator of quality when it comes to hip hop music. Um, and so Kendrick losing on the Grammys, I mean, yeah, it sucks because you sh- people should have recognized it. But it, again, it's sort of like, why would you have expected the Grammys to be an arbitrator of taste when it comes to hip hop, when the Grammys has never, as an institution, demonstrated, I think, competence in that area? So, um, I mean, yeah, I, I I didn't feel mad about it because I never gave the Grammys credence as a arbitrator. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was just me as my first... Uh time as a hip-hop fan just really getting a an actual sense of disappointment in the quote-unquote system or what deems to be the best album or great music because um i actually did like macklemore but if you're gonna i mean it's fine yeah i mean it's fine it's yeah over good kid bad city best album (laughs) in that year I mean, fuck out of here. One no, of the no, greatest debut no, albums you know? of this generation, you know, of this era for like hip hop in specific um, with Kendrick, because um, if we're just talking about in his class full of Wale and J. Cole, he easily knocks it out the park. Uh, Wale and Cole didn't get it right, didn't get their quote unquote classics until their about third album or such like that. Kendrick, um, so meticulous with his um you know his the guy he signed to top from tde they patiently built this moment signing a young teenager you know to a rap label and just slowly you know building him up building him up building him up and he wasn't even supposed to be the first he wasn't even the first artist to really be pushed out there it was j it was j rock who went first you know, Kendrick Kendrick was second, but he just so happened to shatter all expectations. And by the time we got to, to Pimp a Butterfly and All Right, clearly he had the budget. Um, clearly he had the skills and just uh, an introduction into the rest of the world. Because if you think about the, the video, um, back when I used to film a lot, it did it in black and white and I love filming in black and white and the music video was black and white. It was in, it was in LA and it felt gritty, but sunshine and it was just a lot happening. And because of that, now he ends up getting all of these multiple Grammys. But at this point you're looking at it like, who cares? You know, like you're more than late to the party, you know, because the production is like you were saying with Pharrell using those voices, you know, Off the top, it was amazing. And, you know, he gives us that signature four count, you know, that Pharrell always does. All's my life I has to fight, nigga. All's my life From there, from this song in particular, it was when I started really diving deep into music um, more because to Pimp a Butterfly was very musical. You, you, you have Terrace Martin on there. You have uh, Thundercat. Thundercat doing the outro Thundercat. for the song. Right. 
nights and my prayers. It's, it's, you know, and we get Rhapsody, you know, <laughs> a cosign, Ninth Wonder, like just one of the many great components that it takes to create a classic album. And then you get a classic song like All Right, you know, and it's something that I will <laughs> that I will play nonstop over and over again whenever I feel like I'm quote unquote with the shits. You know, <laughs> whenever I feel like it's time for me to, you know, stand tall and stand strong into something. So if you could describe this song in one word, what would it be? Well, it's funny because the first word that came to mind was hope. But then the more I thought about it, I think maybe defiance fits in. A little bit better and and really i think the song is really somewhere on the spectrum between hope and defiance um which are i feel like very similar and compatible nouns if you will but they but they represent different things um and the attitude that he has on here this is not meant to be an anthem about hope i really do think it's an anthem about defiance and we will not we go away and you will listen to mm. us and Definitely. we're going to be here. Yeah. The, the the one word that comes to my mind is just force. You know, like in a move, yeah. like the immovable yeah. object that just will not, that you can't stop. It's still coming at you, you know, nonstop, full speed. And you even still feel that force. You still feel that pressure, even when he ends the song with the poem. Like after he gives you all of this high energy then he comes back down by just saying, I remember you was conflicted. You know, he's saying the same thing, that same poem that's being echoed throughout the album. I remember you was conflicted, misusing your influence. Sometimes I did the same, abusing my power full of resentment, resentment that turned into a deep depression. Found myself screaming in the hotel room. I didn't want to self-destruct. The evils of Lucy was all around me. So I went running for answers. It's it's damn near a masterpiece, you know, for somebody who's just maturing his musical taste buds now. And um, yeah, thanks for uh, doing this breakdown with me. It's been a... It's oh, been a, a really, a it's been yeah. a while since I've gotten uh, really listening more into hip hop because lately I've been more on my bossa nova kick. Um, <laughs> and it, it is, hey, it, that it sounds works nice too. perfectly yeah. with the ladies. Let's just get that out the way. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> At the end of the show, I picked three songs that have been in rotation for me for the past week, and um, yeah. I'll, if you don't know, I. I decided to do this because um, I digest music best while I'm driving. And <laughs> some people do it when they're cleaning. Some people do it when just laying around. And I do it best when I'm driving. And it's always when I'm driving to work. But now I'm going to put it in your hands. And I want you, the guests, to tell me the three songs that have been in constant rotation for you over the past week. Sure. So the first one is a um, it's a Northern Soul single uh, out of Cleveland from 1967. It's by a group called The Headlines, and the song's called "He's Looking for Love." 
And it's a, a single that I got turned on to a few years ago up at one of my, at not even one of my favorite record store on the planet, which is Groove Merchant Records up in San Francisco. Uh, they had it on the wall and um, kind of fell in love with it the first time I heard it and have spent the last, oh God, I don't know how many years now trying to locate a more affordable copy of it. Uh, it is it is not a cheap purchase by any means, but I think it's it's well worth um, every penny. And it's one of those songs where it's it's just under two minutes long, and especially at a time now where we kind of expect pop songs to be probably in the ballpark of like four to five minutes and whatnot. I mean, it's very short, but it's perfect at the length that it is, uh, partly because it, it, it does leave you wanting more, but it it's not that it ends abruptly and it's not that it's too short. It's just, it's so joyful in its verve. You just want to, to just live in that moment as long as possible, even if that moment is only a minute and 55 seconds. Um, but it does a lot of work in that. You guys hear that? We're digging today. We are, we are officially digging inside these crates. All right, song number two, what you got? Number two is a song that just came out a couple weeks ago. It's by a, uh, a rap artist out of Durham, North Carolina, who had been living in L.A. for a while, named G. Yamazawa. Uh, the song's called Thematic Music, and it's off of a brand new EP that he just put out called Think Piece. Uh, that's P-E-A-C-E. Uh, and it features bamboo. So, uh, who's another They call it a soundtrack. They call it dramatic music. So, G. Amazawa is Japanese American. Bamboo is Filipino American. Um, and I discovered Jimazawa a few years ago on uh, off the strength of his breakout single call, uh, called North CAC, which is about uh, North Carolina because that's where he grew up and had been a, a huge fan of him uh, ever since. And when I first started listening to more of his music, I had it in my mind and I, I, I hung out with him a few times and said, yo, you really need to do something with with Bam, with Bamboo, because and it's not because they're both Asian American. I mean, that's part of it, but a lot of it's because um both in terms of their style and their politics and their music, I thought were super simpatico. And, um, you know, Asian Americans in hip hop, well, as rappers in particular, I mean, is are still very deeply underground. And if there's an opportunity for two like-minded folks to get together to create something, I just think it makes sense to like make that connection work. And so uh, I was super pleased to see him and Bam finally doing a song together. Um, on this new EP and, and thematic music is, I think, a great showcase like for why both artists are now I remember y'all, every single song that has been played in this episode is already in the episode description, songs, plays, and whatnot. So if you say, man, what's the name of that fire song that Oliver was just telling me about? 
you can just go ahead and look right on the episode description. So go ahead and cap it off with us. Song number three. Song number three is, is I'm, I'm going back, back in time, and this is from 1974, and it's a gospel soul song called Lord, Hold Me in Your Arms by a group called The Crowns of Glory. And, uh, you know, in my personal life, I'm an agnostic, bordering on an atheist. I certainly did not grow up listening to gospel at all. But I've come to gospel largely through just decades of listening to soul music and wanting to learn more about the history of, of soul. You can't t- talk about that that history without understanding gospel. Um, and in particular, I just love when gospel and soul cross over into one another, especially coming um, out of the 60s and 70s. And this song in particular has just been in the heaviest of rotations for me the entire year. Um, what's funny is that I actually had owned the album for years, but had slept on this cut because I had picked it up for an entirely different song. And it wasn't until this was at the beginning of uh, 2020 um, that I was listening to Lil Wayne's The Carter uh, Four, and he's got the song on there called Demons. And I was thinking, man, this the sample in Demons is really good. Sleeping what with is the this? enemy, my demons are too intimate. She's sleeping very gently, so now they starting to enter it, and now they starting to mentor me. Geeking like Brittany, tweaking my energy, eating die sympathy, screaming cry infamy. Come alive mentally, and love die physically. My love cried miserably, hugs getting looser, her tongue tied kissing me. She fucked died niggas, see, now they both digging me, but demons got dignity, demons got memories. I had a little revenge in me, so now I'm mad. And it led me back to the crowns of glory. And I'm like, wait, this album cover, I was on, uh, what was it, whosample.com. I'm like, this album cover looks really familiar. I'm like, oh shit, I actually think I have this album. I just never bothered to listen to this track. And the minute that I started to play it, I'm like, this is just the most amazing thing. Um, It's been in just constant rotation for the entire year. And it is, at this point, easily in my top five gospel soul albums. playlist it's just it's such a magical performance and the way especially um you know unlike kendrick where the the big moment hits you at the beginning this song is a slow burner and it's when um the main singer i I forget his name off the top but when he hits the last chorus and there's a slight change in the arrangement and it is just magnificent i mean i I can't find an adjective that can properly capture it But um, if you've never heard it, um, you can find versions of it online. But Lord, hold me in your arms by the crowns of glory. Uh, and pun intended, it is a glorious, glorious Yeah, you 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 you're literally getting my uh you you're waking my grandparents up from the dead by uh naming these old fashioned uh gospel uh 
songs right here, man. God, man, you just literally took me back to my infomercial days where <laughs> we would just, where I would just stay up all night and just listen to uh, all of these records that my grandmother had and watching the commercials and hearing mm -hmm. these gospel artists like them that you were just telling me about. Oh man, that is awesome. So before we go, Oliver, please tell everybody where they can find you on your socials. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, if on Instagram, and I, I was not smart enough to get the same name for all of my different accounts, so uh, these are going to be a little, a little bit different. But on Instagram, where I'm probably most active, it's at Soulsides, named after my blog, S-O-U-L-S-I-D-E-S. Uh, on Twitter, I'm uh, which I try to keep off of because it's been crazy toxic for yes. the last four years for perhaps reasons that don't need to be explained. But um, I'm at Oliver S. Uh, Wong, W-A-N-G, on there. Go um, ahead. And, you know, if I if you don't mind me plugging, once again, please pl please check out please. the podcast, which is Heat Rocks. And we are at we are at heatrockspod.com, and we're on Spotify. We're please, on though, plug it. Let me tell you something, man. Listening to y'all podcast, whenever I'm stuck and not trying to figure out a song, I listen to your stuff. I listen to your show, even if you're breaking down an old soul song, I'll be like, I know that sample. This artist brings me here, connects that and whatnot. So please, please. So thank you for your for your contribution to music, hip hop, with your podcast, with your blogs and all that. I 100% appreciate it, sir. No, I appreciate you having me. Bang. And just like that, we have a successful bonus episode. If you stay to the very end, man, I appreciate y'all. Appreciate you, Oliver, for joining me for this episode, man. Yo, we got more shit lined up for the month of November. All right. So let's end off with my favorite verse off of Kendrick Lamar's All Right. And in the meantime, in between time, y'all stay safe because we're not invincible. Peace and love. My name is Doug. What you want? You a house, you a car, 40 acres and a mule, a piano, a guitar, anything. See, my name is Lucy. I'm your dog. Motherfucker, you can live at the mall. I can see the evil. I can tell it. I know it's illegal. I don't think about it. I deposit every other zero. Thinking of my partner. Put the candy painting on a Rico. Digging in my pocket. In a profit. Big enough to feed you every day. My logic. Get another dollar just to keep you in the presence of your Chico. Ah! I don't talk about it. Be about it. Every day a sequel. If I got it, then you know you got it. Heaven, I can reach you. Pet dog, pet dog, pet dog.